Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You know, whenever I go out into the community and speak at uh, churches, one of the questions that I can uh, count on being asked is to explain the differences between the uh, denominations known to many by the terms Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Of course, these are the three primary denominations within uh, modern Judaism. But in the last uh, 25 years, uh, new denominations have emerged. They have titles like Reconstructionism, Humanistic Judaism, and Renewal Judaism. To many, the denominations in Judaism may seem similar to sex in Christianity. As Protestantism emerged during the Reformation from Catholicism and Protestantism itself um, divided and uh, replicated into many different uh, denominational approaches, I thought this morning that I would speak about the origins of Jewish denominationalism, because uh, to understand how the terms were initially uh, used gives us a greater sense of understanding about modern Judaism. For in truth, Denominationalism is nothing new to Jewish life. Ideological and political struggles that sometimes even led to formal schisms are, in fact, no means, by no means exclusive characteristic of modern Judaism. The late Second Temple period, from the first century before the Christian era to the first century after, with its sectarian climate, stands out as an era of deep-seated dissension within the ranks of the heirs to biblical tradition. And you, my Christian listeners, are certainly quite aware that the origins of Jesus and his followers can be directly attributed to this climate of dissension and approach to new theological understandings. From the ninth century of the Common Era, the debate between Jews following rabbinic views of tradition and the Karaites, a group who rejected rabbinic tradition, traversed wide geographical expanses and produced a wellspring of polemically inspired literature. Those who adhered to the authority of the Talmud, often known as the Rabbinites, even called into question the Jewish pedigree of their opponents and promulgated various decrees and customs aimed at concretizing boundaries 
between those who rejected rabbinic authority and relied solely on the words of Torah and those who were constructing their lives according to rabbinic interpretation. The rise and development of the Sabbatean movement, those individuals who proclaim Shabbatites fee an Egyptian Jew, are actually from Gaza, from the mid-17th century, similarly led to hostile and vituperative disputes that forced leaders as well as lay figures to furnish clear-cut demonstrations of allegiance to what then became known as normative rabbinic Judaism. That said, this brief historical overview of arguments and schisms, there are a number of crucial areas that generally distinguish some these examples from the modern situation. And these are important for us, these distinctions, in helping us to understand the origins of modern Jewish uh, sectarianism. For one, rarely did the pre-modern groups raise doubts about the central importance of Jewish law, halacha. The main argument centered rather around issues of interpretation and doctrine and their implication for the specifics of observance. Second, pre-modern Jews most often lived in environments in which the local Jewish community was granted autonomy in regard to eternal, internal affairs. This is extremely important to understand denominationalism. In some cases, supra-communal frameworks like the Council of Four Lands in Poland were established, and these supra-communal frameworks dictated certain common policies for all the individual communities of a given geographically or politically unified region. Within the local environments themselves, all those professing to be Jews were obligated by civil law to act in accordance with the proscriptions of the Jewish authorities of the town or area. Let me repeat that again. Within the local environments themselves, all those professing to be Jews were obligated by the civil secular law of the surrounding community to act in accordance with the proscription of the Jewish authorities of the town or area. So therefore, to violate the dictates of the Jewish authority was considered illegal according to the overarching civil authority. The Jewish communal members themselves, together with religious judges and other communal functionaries, orchestrated all aspects of collective life in accordance with rabbinic law and custom. Educational, ritual, and social norms among Jewish families as such were, the f for the most part, uniformly consistent. Those who considered deviating it from it, be it through ignoring religious statues or expressing heretical opinions, were well aware that they could be censured. Repeated delinquency, moreover, might even lead to harsh disciplinary actions that would severely hurt their economic and social welfare. 
In most cases, the only alternative was formal conversion to the religion of the non-Jewish majority. In most cases, the only option for those who did not want to follow the stringent communal dictates was conversion out of the community. Unlike modern circumstances, no neutral society existed that will allow those who felt alienated from the dominant trends of their co-religionists to detach themselves from the constraints of an environment dedicated to promoting conformity. Another trait of pre-modern Jewry was the limited exposure of most Jews to the majority non-Jewish culture. Surely we know that there was no hermetic seal and regular commercial context as well as some cultural and fraternal interactions existed. Indeed, medieval Spain and late medieval Italy stand out as exceptional examples in which extensive connections developed between Jewish and Gentile elites, which were expressed in both the social norms and the intellectual orientation of the Jews. For numerous reasons, however, the main cultural influence, and sometimes a nearly exclusive one for most Jewish individuals, remained their own Jewish society and environments. This separation was reinforced by visceral Jewish fears of proselytizing, along with the legal limitations that were regularly placed on Jewish occupations, civil activities, and settlement limitations. It received support as well from the stratified nature of feudal and monarchic societies. So now we have two reasons that led to a communal uh, a unified communal approach to Judaism in the pre-modern world. A pressure from the outside that um, did not allow Jews to leave their community, and pressure from the inside, which knowing that there was no place for a Jew to be a non-practicing Jew or to be an alternatively practiced Jew, imposed strict regulations. Needless to say, the past 300 years have seen the gradual breakdown of the traditional society and with it, the social and religious uniformity that dominated Jewish life. This process began in Central and Western Europe, and by the mid-20th century, with rare exceptions, all Jewish communities throughout the world were characterized by their diverse and original efforts in responding to the challenges of modern societal and intellectual realities. That is the origin of denominational perspectives. Let me repeat that. With rare exceptions, all Jewish communities throughout the world were characterized by their diverse and original efforts at responding to the challenges of modern societal and intellectual realities. Denominationalism 
is a response to modernity. One result has been that the tie between Jewish identity and certain accepted religious principles, something which was taken as a given through the previous centuries, has weakened and if not completely dissolved. Secularists have certainly advocated for the detachment of bonds of ethnicity from those of faith. But the emergence of civic environments in which Jews could choose whether and to what extent to remain committed to divine-oriented expressions of Judaism has also caused the religiously committed to consider the nature of their connection to those who did not share their convictions. While the Orthodox have been the most vociferous in this regard, liberal theologians and activists have also struggled with the tension between Jewish tribal solidarity and a sense of community that emanates primarily from shared values and ideological understandings. Indeed, the denominationally-centered Jewish life that emerged in the 19th century and now dominates American Jewish life, North American Jewish life, was predicted to a great degree on the upper hand gained by the community of faith approach over an emphasis on ethnic unity. I want to share with you some of our understandings of how this works. You've heard my introductory comments, but now we want to look at some uh, more specific uh, commentary that serves as a basis for understanding that uh, prologue to this issue. And so I'm going to quote from Jacob Katz, a book entitled Tradition and Crisis. Katz writes, The basic characteristics of traditional society were shared by all Jewish community. Jews everywhere had similar attitudes towards Gentiles and parallel values concerning all areas of human endeavor, from making a living to sexuality. Their basic institutions, the family, the house of study, the synagogue, the rabbinate, fulfilled similar functions everywhere. These fundamentals served the Jews over and over as a basis on which to rebuild their society wherever they settled. The Kehillah, The community did not hesitate to resort to coercion in order to maintain its authority. The harem, which we would understand as excommunication, served as a means of enforcing the opinions of either the rabbis or lay leadership on the public at large. Preventing an individual from participating in communal life that is the definition of harem, was one of the outstanding disciplinary measures of the Kehillah from the 16th through 18th century. The extent of the ban depended on the seriousness of the offense. 
the threat it posed to one's physical existence was not only was not the only intimidating aspect of cherem. It also meant that the individual would not be able to perform his religious obligations as he was excluded from all synagogues. Next to the rabbinate, the second classic religious institution was the synagogue, the institution de- de- dedicated to public prayer. During the apex of the traditional kehilah, small and medium-sized kehilot had a single synagogue proper, while large kehilot communities would have a number of parallel synagogues as well. Even those auxiliary synagogues, however, preserved their public character and were subject to all local customs and to the authority of the community. Somewhat more detached was the Beit Midrash of the Rosh Yeshiva, where the rabbi prayed together with his students whenever he was not obligated to appear at a community event. Only the Kabbalists of the early and extreme established truly secluded Bate Midrash or Cloism, attended by their adherents of their specific liturgical tradition. I included that last part to indicate that even um, in the 16th through 18th century, there were small groups who uh, maintained some sort of separation from the general kehilah. So the underlying theme of this text is the uniformity in lifestyle, mores, religious behavior, and institutional structures that characterize the pre-modern Jewish community. Indeed, we are informed that to a great extent, this model held sway not only for the Ashkenazic Jews of Central and Eastern Europe, but throughout the diaspora and across continents. This uniformity was nurtured through relative social and cultural seclusion from the Gentile environment, intensive internal family connections, and an educational system that celebrated the wisdom of Torah, Jewish uniqueness, and the spiritual rewards that awaited those who lived a life of pious observance and commitment. You'll also note, having listened carefully, that in the second paragraph of Dr. Katz's document, he emphasizes that the autonomous Jewish community also had enforcement tools at its disposal that were critical to maintaining unity and individual subservience. Under the circumstances of the pre-emancipatory society in Europe, Cherem was an efficient vehicle for civil and religious um, coercion due to the lack of a neutral society in which a person could live as a Jew without necessarily following religious strictures, at least in public. The only choices available were either to submit to communal standards or veered toward Gentile identity, which ultimately meant apostasy for most Jews. Since most Jews, even those who may have had certain religious misgivings, felt stronger ties to their brethren than to their Gentile neighbors, the only real option was to conduct oneself according to accepted norms. No legitimate Jewish outlook existed that could sustain significant diversity in Jewish observance and lifestyle. 
By the early 19th century, the uniformity which characterized traditional Jewish society had been usurped in many larger and central in many larger Central and Western European communities by a culture of choice in which Jews increasingly adopted behaviors and attitudes that reflected their deviation from classical norms. Let me offer you an insight into that transition. I want to share with you something that um, most of you are probably unaware of. In initial stages in Reform Judaism's development took place in Central Europe, primarily Germany, in the first decades of the 19th century. A key milestone in the establishment of Reform as a distinct religious stream was the dedication of the Hamburg Temple in 1818. It marked the first time that a Reform public house of prayer was integrated into the official local communal structure. Those reform-oriented groups that had previously met in other cities had generally done so in private homes or in schools. The rise of such an institution sparked a major public controversy in Hamburg. In their efforts to delegitimize their ties, their new adversaries, the more conservative traditionalists who represented the foundation for the early Orthodox movement felt obligated to define more clearly how their authentic religious worldview differed from that articulated by their Jewish upstart foes. Ironically, the notoriety achieved by the Reform through this polemic actually strengthens its position as an alternative to the traditional religious approach. Now, I'm going to share with you um, a document that um, offered a fresh religious worldview and distinguished this group in Hamburg, Germany in 1818 from those surrounding them. They wrote, Since public worship has for some time been neglected by so many, because of the ever-decreasing knowledge of the language in which it alone has until now been conducted, and also because of many other shortcomings which have crept in at the same time, the undersigned, convinced of the necessity to restore public worship to its deserving dignity and importance, have joined together to follow the example of several Israelite congregations, especially the one in Berlin. They plan to arrange in this city for themselves and others who think as they do a dignified and well-ordered ritual according to which the worship service will be conducted on the Sabbath and Holy Days and on other solemn occasions and which shall be observed in their own temple to be erected solely for this purpose. Specifically, they shall be introduced at such services as a German sermon, a choral singing, and a choir singing to the accompaniment of an organ. Well, this was certainly the throwing down of the gauntlet 
The document says that lacking certain fundamental skills, which would have meant Hebrew reading and knowledge of Jewish law, these Jews felt out of place in the main communal synagogue. Yet this was not the only determinant in their decision to create their own house of prayer. Their initiative, as they made clear in this document, would enable those who think as they do to coalesce into a unique collective. The focus here in this text is on the shared aesthetic values that would engender a sense of commonality. The Jewish historian Michael Meyer has pointed out that the prayer book, which was adopted by the new congregation, included changes that also deeply challenged, that challenged deeply held traditional theological beliefs. In this new prayer book that was introduced, references to temple sacrificial worship, for example, were de-emphasized. While most of the passages in the Siddur, Jewish prayer book, that concerned the future return to Zion were either altered or completely omitted, such adjustments reflected both the desire to purify Judaism of its primitive roots, as well as to remove those elements in the tradition that highlighted Jewish national identity instead of a purely religious confessional orientation. I want to repeat that statement. Such adjustments reflected both the desire to purify Judaism of its primitive roots as well as to remove those elements in the tradition that highlighted Jewish national identity instead of a purely religious confessional orientation. At first glance, it would seem counterintuitive to believe that this was done in order to um, intensify religious belief. But the truth is, reformers in Hamburg in the 19th century had become alienated from accepted religious practice and wanted to cut out certain customs and adjust accepted worship to their contemporary understandings. These groups promoted religious worldviews that sacrificed the fundamental ethnic aspect of Jewish identity that unifies all Jews in a particular geographic locale. They focused instead on common faith and practice as the main vehicle for connecting between individuals of Jewish origin. This perception lies at the foundation of the denominational-oriented approach that emerged among modern religious movements. Let me end with this quote by a German rabbi from, again, the 19th century. He writes, The people of Israel no longer live, not even in the fears and desires of the present. It is resurrected as a congregation of faith, and only what touch it is has an undisputed right to our concern. The exodus from Egypt will not lose its significance as the first cornerstone of the genesis of Israel, but it should no longer be given the exalted position which it has in our prayers, which as a national event 
outranks even the giving of the law at Sinai. Sinai, the revelation of God's relationship, becomes the central focus of denominationalism. Faith over ethnicity. I will have more to say about Jewish denominationalism in future shows. This is simply an introduction to denominationalism as a response to modernity. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you have a good day. Shalom.